Full disclosure, I'm Robin Barzad. You're tapping into something that investors love, just like everybody else. This is fantasy football for mergers and acquisitions. AT&T, Time Warner, an $85 billion mega merger that smells a lot like the worst deal in history. What in the name of Y2K are these companies thinking? That's our fat bundle for the hour. Stay with us. This week's broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by my... Good friends at Elwood Thompson since 1989, located at the top of Carytown, really the best market in Richmond. Customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, locally made and prepared foods, healthy oils. You have a food advocate there. You have a health coach. You have Rick and Molly Hood. You have Indian Wednesdays and the third Thursday pairings menus. You must check them at the corner of Elwood's and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from NPR's New York City studios, opposite Bryant Park, two of my favorite media machers. You can look up macher in a Yiddish dictionary. First, Craig Moffat, founder at Moffat Nathanson, veteran sector analyst. He's covered media and telecom in various different ways for the better part of 25 years. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on. Of course. And David Folkenflik, our friend, media correspondent at NPR. One of my favorite bylines, it lights up my day to, to hear you on NPR, so I just wanted to get it out of the way by way of disclaimer that I really like you all stuff. Um, so let me just get that out there. Craig, you write, you just have this exceptional writing ability. I don't know if you're like the I, Claudius of uh, media and telco, but these notes, they're just so poetic. And I was struck by one that you put out in reaction to this mega merger, this $85 billion deal AT&T laid out for Time Warner. You said, integration, vertical integration in media has historically been a non-event. Time Warner and Time Warner Cable never really tried. Cablevision and AMC were too small to make much happen. Fox owned DirecTV for a hot minute and arguably extracted some value by forcing DirecTV to accept a huge affiliate fee increase for Fox News. And while Comcast has done well with NBC Universal, it's not because NBCU has benefited from Comcast's ownership of wires or vice versa, but instead simply because Comcast bought NBCU at a good price and at the trough. So I put that all aside and I'm wondering what the heck are these guys doing? You're putting nights and weekend minutes together with Westworld and Game of Thrones. I, I really never saw this coming out of left field. Look, you're right. It's there. It's pretty easy to figure out what the strategies for vertical integration might be. It, it, but, but at the end of the day, what matters is not what you might do. It's what you actually can do. And by the time you get one of these deals through the regulatory process, the rules and restrictions effectively make it impossible to advantage your distribution network by owning content and they make it impossible to advantage your content by owning distribution. So it doesn't make it a bad deal. It just means that at the end of the day, you've got a content business, and you've got a distribution business, and they sit side by side, and never the twain shall meet. And, and, and ultimately, what that means is that all it really matters is did you pay a good price or not. Um, but the, the, all of the gloss and the arm-waving about competitive strategy doesn't really hold up when you poke it. It's really about diversification, not strategy. Can someone explain to me what AT&T has become? And by, by way of explanation, this is not the Ma Bell of your childhood, kind of reach out and touch someone. This is the rebranded Southwestern Bell, SBC, Pactel, um, the, the most precocious of the baby bells. If you remember the breakup in 1984, it had gone out and acquired all these other regional bell operators, uh, was really good about seeing wireless, consolidating wireless, making partnerships through the years. I think it bought Bell South. Um, it then took on the AT&T moniker by way of acquisition, bought DirecTV. We saw AT&T make a pass at T-Mobile. So I don't understand, David. I mean, do they want to double down on wireless and the fat pipes and the wireless pipes and distribution? Or do they want to go into this kind of sexy, you know, TNT, not that TNT is sexy, but certainly HBO is and CNN and Universal Studios and, and everything else that's under the Time Warner content umbrella? Well, I did interview Randall uh, Stevenson and Jeff Bucus uh, together yesterday, uh, and 
the CEOs of the CEOs of AT and T and Time Warner, respectively. Respectively, yes, exactly right. And uh, they talked about how it made every sense. They they stressed the idea of vertical integration. They stressed the idea of being able to innovate. Uh, as uh, part of the same company in a way that they could not somehow as as partners uh, that were not under the same corporate umbrella. They talked about the need to uh, to innovate in ways that uh, that Jeff Bukas uh, said, frankly, he found uh, were often impossible to do, but that he had found in, in AT&T a, a welcome innovator uh, as he well, pursued you, you things like Well, you can innovate like yourself at what, $107 a share is a great innovation for Time Warner shareholders. Right. I mean. Right. So, so, you know, look, I think AT&T looks at what Verizon has been doing and acquiring some uh, content creators and said, maybe we should be in that business too. And maybe they want the scale. Maybe they want what they think is will be additional leverage, although I know Craig and others feel that that's a, that's a mirage, uh, uh, although I don't want to speak for you on that, but I think that's fair to say. Yeah, it's fair to say, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I totally get it. They would say that they don't think it's sexy. One of the uh, pieces that I'm exploring, the threads that I'm pulling, is the question of how does this deal make sense and does it make sense? That is, that it may be that, that Time Warner Flourish is fine, Underneath AT&T and AT&T does pretty well uh, uh, for itself uh, after having acquired this, although obviously it does take on a great deal of debt to do so. And I think that's something to watch. I say that as a former Tribune uh, uh, company employee. But uh, uh, even if that's the case, it's not clear to me that it would prosper more greatly than it would had it not done this deal. And I think that's – you know there are opportunity costs in tying up that amount of capital and that amount of energy as such an absorption, you know, they can talk about it as a murder, it's a merger, it's an acquisition, but, you know, there are absorption, time, effort, sweat, you know, human equity you lose uh, in, in doing such things. Sure. Uh, and it, it seems to me, you know, you, you probably look longingly at, at a Disney, you know, and think, my God, there's a place that has certain uh, uh, colossal imprint and maybe it would be fun to have some of the fun elements as well. But I don't look at AT&T and say this is something that absolutely needed to have a movie studio, that absolutely needed to have uh, uh, a music studio, that absolutely needed to have a cable news channel. It may well be that those things are doing fine, although I've got to say all of them are under certain kinds of economic pressures. I don't know that AT&T is the one to perfectly resolve those. Well, and, and by the way, the comparison to Disney is really interesting, right? Because Disney has a strategic engine that at this point is incredibly well-tuned, right? So the process of creating characters in their animated films, for example, moving those animated films to the theme parks to drive attendance and to the, the retail business to create affinity for the characters for the three or four or five years until the next movie comes out and now it's a real franchise. And they have developed that so effectively and with cable networks that take those, those brands, the individual princess, the individual um, animal character, and take those brands and keep them fresh. And Disney has really turned this into a strategic art. Um, the challenge, again, for AT&T is to try to make this something more than just a collection of assets under one umbrella because that's diversification, not strategy. And that's what all of us on Wall Street are trying to figure out, which is when I poke at this, I can't really get anything tangible that says, here's what we will actually do differently because we own these assets. Here's what these assets will allow me to do to gain strategic advantage. And the problem is, when you're trying to sell a deal like this in Washington and you're trying to get a, a, what is going to be inevitably a very controversial deal done through regulatory, you can't really go out and say, here's all the clever stuff that we're going to do because the clever stuff that you say we're going to do is probably anti-competitive and it's going to make it harder to get your deal done. Um, and so your, your hands are tied anyway in selling the strategy. But the people in Washington aren't dumb. And when you come out the other side, if a deal like this does get approved, you come out the other side and the consent decree, which is the rules that get attached to it, plus the rules that already exist, like the program access rules that say you can't keep content exclusive and what have you, all those kinds of things tend to paint you into a corner that unfortunately is a rather pedestrian place to be. It's just, okay, I am now the steward of two separate sets of assets that I can't actually put together. But also you have to goose your debt load and 
put this huge oh, burden yeah. on your balance sheet. Let's not forget, again, it's not an apples to apples comparison, but AT&T at the turn of the century under uh, C. Michael Armstrong, right, had bought TCI. Oh, the turn uh, of that century. Because it, turn... it goes back to the prior century. <laughs> it goes I thought back, you, but... I thought you were going <laughs> to... No, let's go, back to y... the... let's go back to Y2K because those, you know, those aromas are so pungent in, in conversation. And we'll get to AOL Time Warner. But do you remember when there was a chance to go out and buy cable pipes left and right? And AT&T, you could say... I sure pre- do. I was part of that. Right. Presciently wanted to buy up all the ca- as much cable as it could. Excited home here, you know, Media One, TCI, which was like a you know telecommunications, John Malone's thing, which was kind of decrepit. And then they put it together and they choked on the debt load the during debt. the tech it- downturn, and that leaves you no margin for error. So when you talk about the various execution risks and regulatory risks, and all this happening in a very peculiar, very generous capital markets where you can issue this kind of debt on super easy. Uh, long-term numbers and digits, it seems to be taking a hell of a lot for granted. It does. You know, and I'm so glad you brought up that that Michael Armstrong um, analogy because you're the first person that I've heard who's actually um, remembered that and drawn the parallels. And I've been thinking a lot about that over the last couple of days because what I th- my very clear um, impression of, of that period under Michael at, at, at AT&T was that they had the diagnosis right, um, they had the strategy right, and they had the price wrong. Um, exactly as you said, they they knew what they needed to get. They needed broadband assets. They needed a broadband infrastructure. And then, and then Comcast effectively got the price right in buying AT&T broadband, right? They bought it when it was spun off for a song, and right. AT&T took a bath on it. And, sure. But the problem of having the strategy right but the price wrong is a very real-world problem, right? If you know the asset that you need, um, but it's too expensive to buy, um, it's just as bad as buying the wrong asset. And and that may turn out to be the challenge for, AT, for AT&T here. Remember, even if you said Time Warner is the right asset to buy, um, they have had to pay a 36% premium relative to the price where it was trading on Wednesday. And the price where it was trading on Wednesday already had some expectation that somebody would acquire Time Warner in it. Um, but they, you had to pay a 36% premium to what the, the collective wisdom of the capital markets thought it was worth. Um, so you're already starting with a pretty big divot. And to your point about debt, um, the debt load of AT&T is, is they are the largest credit issuer, um, non, non-financial, that is non-bank uh, credit issuer in the United States. If you look at their balance sheet, is before the transaction, they have about $117 billion of debt, but there's another $72 billion of debt that doesn't show up on the balance sheet in the form of capital leases for all those wireless towers, unfunded pension obligations for their retirees, and unfunded health care benefits for their retirees. Add all of that up, and you're talking about a company that before this transaction has more than $180 billion of debt. And a dividend that everybody looks at as sacrosanct, right? They've paid it forever, and you're supposed to keep coverage ratios high enough. And I don't know if widows and orphans still go after AT&T stock, but— They sure do. They sure do. It's still the ultimate widows and orphans stock. Aside from the credit markets, that's where Wall Street is really kind of voting on this. Time Warner stock, and is the takeout price assumed like $107, $108? Today, it's trading at $87 a share, which kind of reflects the difficulty in the arbitrage. Well, yes, it tells you that the 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 arbitrageurs are putting a very low probability on this being um, approved in Washington. Well, David, what was your reaction when Bloomberg and, and the Wall Street Journal and, and the likes were kind of kicking around this idea that Time Warner was in serious talks with AT&T? I mean, we know that Rupert Murdoch and News Corp had seriously sniffed around. The number bandied about, I think, last year, the year before, it was $85 a share. So that was the bogey for Jeff Bukas, the CEO of Time Warner, to kind of go out and beat did that blindside you? I want to get your initial thoughts when you knew that this was kind of going to happen. I think the shock factor. Well, first off, I, I'm as as is my prejudice. My first thought was, you know, Rupert walking around somewhere and says, "What does an octogenarian billionaire have to do to get a break around here? You know, why 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 is this deal, which is very close to the same kind of value placed on it, why is this deal so very different uh, than than what I would have wanted to do in the summer of '15? And there are reasons, Craig and other people. Uh, uh, perhaps more skilled at uh, at the, the the niceties of that these kinds of arrangements can, can untangle for us. But you know, writ large, this was a deal Bucus wanted to do with with someone else, and that you know they they certainly are trying to make it worth his while. But it's not 
that different. Well, it seems to me. It, it, no, remember it's it's you're you're twenty dollars more per share. Now I think it would have gone that high, but I but interestingly, one of the reasons that we've suspected all along that that Jeff turned down the offer from News Corp um, in 2014 was because. Comcast, as a potential bidder, was sidelined with, at the time, trying to buy Time Warner Cable. Well, let's not forget Time Warner blocked. Cable was cleaved off from Time Warner several years ago, which I, I will get back to that, but I don't understand if you're now trying to bone up on vertical distribution, content and distribution. You, you jettison this pretty admirable cable franchise. Like, why are you... Yeah, look, that, it's, fu- it's very funny that not only when you say you, it was a very specific person. It was Jeff Bukas who effectively voted for saying, I don't believe in the strategy of vertical integration. And it's it's actually quite awkward to see him now talking to the press um, on a roadshow with and selling, Randall, selling the benefits trying of to vertical sell integration. vertical integration as if he actually believes it. Well, and it's I, hard you know, to I, take I, I imagine seriously. he really does believe in the 36% premium, a takeout price uh, that of $108. That part I think he believes, right? Yeah, that, that You've part had Michael Wolf being right about, you know, I, I know that maybe Jeff Bukas was recently divorced. He would get a huge payout if he leaves. This is his victory. Oh, that's, I, that, I, I don't think that's fair. I, I, but, but look, I want to go back to the, to the point we were talking about a second ago, which is one of the reasons he didn't want to take the offer from, uh, from News Corp back in 2014 is because AT&T was also sidelined at the time. Hmm. And the problem in 2014 was if you're going to sell this asset, you want to make sure you've had a chance to shop it in front of all Wait, the Wait, AT&T bidders. was sidelined with DirecTV, right? T-Mobile, with DirecTV. T-Mobile was 2011, if I remember. That's right. So if you're going to have an auction, you want as many possible bidders to be there. And so with AT&T, who was was at the time doing DirecTV, and with Comcast that was at the time trying to do Time Warner Cable, even though that got blocked, neither one was a potential bidder. And and Jeff's calculus was at the time, um, it's not the right thing for my shareholders to sell to the first one that comes along. Two years later, um, there are no big deals pending in Washington that tie anyone up. And so you at least get a clean look at, at and, and I think, look, the reason that this came together so quickly from the time that it was first floated on Thursday till it was a finished and completed deal by Saturday afternoon um, was precisely because um, they once it started, they wanted to see if there any was anyone else who would come out of the woodwork. And it went public. They shopped it around. And the presumption is that Apple has said they kicked the tires. No one knows exactly what that means. It's one of those good um, colloquialisms that, that, that yeah. yeah. Someone wrote, um, like, but, you could walk down the street and kick tires of a random car. It doesn't mean you were looking to buy it. <laughs> I think that's, I think it was Jeff Bukas who said Jeff that. Bukas, but, um, right. <laughs> and, and, but, but so we, we don't really know, but you can, but one thing, look, the bankers I'm sure did their job and did it well, which is to say everyone who might have come forward certainly knew that the opportunity was there. Um, doesn't mean no one will come forward in the future, but, um, but the fact that they have entered into this agreement um, says that for all intents and purposes, there was no one uh, that at least immediately was willing to top AT&T's bid. So if you're Jeff Bukas, you've done the job for shareholders, which is saying this is the best that I can get. You know, and to your, your question, Robin, about, you know, how big a surprise was AT&T, right? Uh, I was less surprised about that because of Verizon, uh, which, which did surprise me. I do think that Verizon makes an argument. I'm not saying it will ultimately be a winning one, but an argument that they're going to be able to achieve some things with advertising with with those that they've acquired. But David, uh, those are pennies. I don't, I don't those see... are pennies compared right. to this, right? No, Eighty-five I, billion compared to five billion, and whatever totally they paid agree. for AOL. Yeah, Huff in Poe. fact, add them up. It's a great point. Add, add them up, and you're talking about AT and T has done. $270 billion of acquisitions in DirecTV and Time Warner Cable. That's uh, don't Time just, Warner. And, and Time Warner Corporation, I mean. Don't just take the equity, add the debt as, that they've taken on as well. So two, they, they've, they've added $170 billion of, of acquisitions, and Verizon has done, what, seven? So Verizon has done 125th of what? They're really uh, keeping their powder dry. Yeah. They're getting into the content game in a certain way and they're getting into the advertising game in a different way than they had, but they're absolutely keeping powder dry. That's right. The thing is, is that this deal makes sense to me for Jeff Bukas, the problems and challenges that he faces at Time Warner. I don't see the reason why, although I've talked to others who, 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 who say they do see it, who are not personally, inter- you know, don't have a, a financial interest in this case, who say they do see the logic. 
I'm uh, count me a skeptic. I don't see what AT&T gains other than just having another asset. And it is, let's be fair, a relatively cheap time at which to acquire debt, you know, which to take on debt. This is, you know, it's it, you're not going to get much better uh, rates than you do now. Sure, sure. But it still is a lot of debt to take on, and that is inhibiting going forward. It, it, it can prevent them from making other acquisitions, other investments, from paying past obligations, uh, from from you know from increasing dividends, from from buying back shares. I mean, there are all kinds of things you can do. And uh, uh, as somebody who doesn't cover telecom in the same way that I cover media, I still look at this company and say, I don't understand why. I was asked a question. All right, from from a, a thoughtful media analyst uh, advises uh, uh, you know investors and such things, and he said, "Listen, why is the, why are you really thinking that much differently about this deal than the Comcast deal?" And I think there are differences. I do too, actually, and, and I'll happily tell you. But why don't you share but, yours? But hold up, hold up, hold up. Full disclosure: we're talking to two of my favorite media gurus, Craig Moffat, founder at Moffat Nathanson. He's been covering media and telecom for. 25 years, and David Folkenflik, NPR's media correspondent. Uh, love you guys. I'm going to say it one last time, I swear. Um, I do want to uh, get to one thing first, and and you you point to this in, in your research reports, Craig. What was the urgency for AT&T to even go out and buy DirecTV? I thought that was a diminishing asset. I mean, you're in a world right now where cord cutting, if you have a cable TV provider, is a real clear and present danger. I, I went and lectured to this group of um, uh, 20-year-old communication school majors and I just to break you know to break the ice I say what do you guys watch on TV they looked like me like I was a moron like what do, what do you mean TV we Netflix and chill we just get on any Wi-Fi maybe I use my friends or my roommates Hulu login um, you know they're just very promiscuous about where they get their content they have a Spotify login but this whole idea of getting a TV and getting a hundred and thirty dollar cable package which after all is like the very essence of of the whole bundle and everything that then trickles down to the network providers and the carriage fees and ESPN, which is critical to Disney's survival. Why did these guys, AT&T, go and double down on that with DirecTV, which I thought was was kind of left in the dust by cable winning the broadband wars? Well, it's a it's a complicated story of how we get here, but I would describe it as, as this. Um, AT&T... Uh, started before DirecTV with a portfolio that was about half wireless and half wireline. And the wireline business was shrinking, but the wireless business was growing. I think they saw the writing on the wall that the wireless business was going to start to decline. And remember that they had tried to buy uh, T-Mobile in 2011, and it had been blocked by the Department of Justice. That, in some ways, was was Randall Stevenson's strategic opus. It was, mm. if I can do that deal, then, then I have... Uh, effectively sealed my legacy um, with my big transaction. Strategically, it would have made sense. Financially, it would have made sense. The government didn't let him do it. But at that point, he had to do something. And the challenge when you're as big as AT&T is finding something that satisfies the requirement that it's both big enough to move the needle so that it actually matters and permissible by the Department of Justice is actually a really small list of companies, right? He could have gone overseas and bought Vodafone and he thought about it. In fact, they even shopped that to their shareholders and started telling them that's probably what we're going like as to a, do. Like as a trial balloon, I remember that. Yeah, and I think ultimately they decided and it turned out to be right to say, we don't know enough to be able to make a call about the future of the regulatory environment in Europe to figure out whether that's a business we need to own right now or not. You could buy so a film studio or Rockefeller Center or do something crazy like that or a steakhouse. You could completely, sure, you could completely diversify <laughs> and you could buy a washing machine maker. But but to be able to sell it with at least some, some semblance of strategic um, logic, there weren't many things in the U.S. that they were going to be allowed to buy. And ultimately, it came down to DirecTV or Dish Network. Um, DirecTV, they determined, was the better asset. It was certainly the better brand, um, and they bought DirecTV. But now you're in an even tighter box because, as you said, oh, wait, wait, wait. they time, time out, time out. So from T-Mobile aborted, right, to DirecTV doubled down, and they're hoping that that teaser package, which, you know, what is it, like $50 for a skinny bundle of sorts, isn't a race to the bottom but is going to make you more sticky for – Subscribers out there who will buy your wireless package will get DirecTV. They even have legacy cable. I don't even know what it's called, UVerse or something in in um, states like Texas. 
Um, That's right. Which so they the hope are, is that rapidly Kentucky. shutting down. So let me say the hope is that you could just hang on to this legacy hundred and thirty dollars. Let's say it's a two hundred dollar bundle if you throw in wireless, not the triple play, the quadruple play. But I, at, at risk of sounding cliche, millennials are dispensing with that anyway, right? They use. They use WhatsApp. They use their smartphones. Yeah. They, um, I guess you still have to be on a major network, but I still don't understand. Does AT&T, Randall Stevenson, do they want to bulk up on controlling the pipes? And then this canard of like, okay, if I bring in HBO and TBS and CNN and the Cartoon Network, it's going to what? Make me more sticky to millennials? Well, let's let, before we get to, to, to Time Warner for a second – Think I, I think you're right. I think they knew that DirecTV was a melting ice cube. The question is just how fast is it melting? And the question of how fast it's melting is, in, in essence, the only question, right? If you assume that pay TV as a category is going to decline, um, that's okay. There's still a price for that asset as to what it's worth, and it generates a lot of cash. Um, and the problem is you better be pretty good at forecasting how fast it's going to decline. And interestingly, they committed all year throughout their financial guidance that the sum of the losses that they had on their old legacy Uverse platform plus the gains that they had on the DirecTV platform would be a positive number for the full year. And it wasn't until the results that they released over this weekend so just uh, two days ago, that they conceded, oh, well, we're not actually going to make that number. It's going to be positive in the fourth quarter, but it'll still be negative for the whole year. And so that tells you that something in their outlook has changed just in the one year that they got it. And reading between the lines, it tells you that the ice cube is melting faster than they thought. So there is a desperation more than kind of the models suggested, that to the extent that they're willing to pay a, a rich, rich premium in theory to take out Time Warner with, again, let's go CNN, TBS, TNT, Turner, um, uh, you know, uh, Warner Brothers, everything in, in the HBO library, which let's admit is amazing. I don't know if Randall Stevenson goes and watches Westworld or, you know, Game of Thrones. That stuff is mesmerizing stuff. It's a shiny, shiny bauble. David, what do you think? I, I mean, I think that, that you guys are exploring the thing that has made me feel a little bit like a dog chasing its tail, where you're trying to figure out what's the logic. And when you get to the logic, it sort of contradicts something on the other side of the equation. These things can work, although it seems as though telecom is under some stress and media is under some stress, right? And both of them are driven by related technology, but that have different solutions or different diagnoses. Uh, of what the problems are. I think that that it is very hard to separate, you know, I think it's important not to be cynical, but I think it's very hard to separate personal uh, agendas from uh, what end up being corporate decisions. And I say that without animus at all. But if you hear, as we've just heard from Craig about the, the legacy question for Randall Stevenson, you know, a couple of big acquisitions help cement what's his record. You know, presidents, uh, you know, used to like to have huge infrastructure, you know, the Hoover Dam, the Eisenhower Highway System, whatever, you know, to sort of say these are things I leave behind. And I think you see that in media. He's not, he's not opening a presidential library. He runs a telco. I mean, what's supposed to be your record? You you, you deliver service. <laughs> he makes a lot more than the president. You, you, know, del but, you but, deliver but, service. You slap your name on a bunch of arenas. You do sponsorship well, and, deals and, and keep the, thing, the dividend. I never knew that the, the bogey was so high for these guys. But remember, though, Rob, I mean, the, the – his predecessor, Ed Whitaker, exactly as you described earlier in the show, Ed Whitaker um, took what was a regional phone company, one of the seven regional baby bells, and grew it into a colossus. And if you're the next CEO after Ed Whitaker and Ed Whitaker's legacy is, I did this deal, I did that deal, I did this deal, and here's what I created – the onus is to say, I've got to live up to some pretty big shoes to fill. Now, Verizon did take a bold move in going out and spending on, I remember when it was announced, the $16, $17 billion fiber rollout. Verizon being the other precocious baby bell, you remember it as kind of, uh, um, what, Bell Atlantic, New York, Telephone, we're all connected. I don't remember what it was. And it was rebranded at the turn of the century in 2000 as Verizon. That was a bold move to have a product, Fios now, which, you know, whatever, a decade later, really competes with uh, Comcast and the other cable companies and keeps those um, natural monopolies in check. I never um, really, uh, you know, under Ed Whitaker or uh, Randall Stevenson saw AT&T do something similar like that, kind of make a bold move. You could take your cash flow and plow it into debt, plow it into mega deals 
declining assets like uh, um, DirecTV, or you could do something really bold like fiber optic that kind of makes you really indispensable before you go off and and you know vertically integrate. That's a, that's a great narrative, Robin. Except that when you actually poke at it, um, that investment by Verizon back in in that really started around 2005. It's about a 20 um, billion dollar investment, but I'm told the profit 20 23 billion dollars right. by Ivan, Ivan Seidenberg and today the wireline business at Verizon generates a 1.9% return on invested capital, which is to say think about that if for the non-financial listeners as borrowing money at 5% in order to put it into a bank account to earn 2. Wow. Um it's it just doesn't work financially, um, and so it has it gives them a very nice network, and it's been great for consumers. But financially, it has been a very poor investment, um, and it's not for nothing that Verizon around 2010 pulled the plug and said we're not expanding it anymore because it didn't make sense. AT and T made a very different decision, which was we're going to do a much cheaper, less ambitious network. Um, and I guess the, the, the less pain, less gain. Um, it actually, the network is nowhere near as technologically uh, uh, proficient as Verizon's, but it also was a much less onerous financial commitment than Verizon's. And sure. so choose your poison. But it's not like either one of them was sitting there with, I've got on the one hand a great choice and on the other hand a bad one. And as long as I make the right one, I'm fine. Both of them were faced with bad choices. Well, why not stay the course as a wireless giant? I thought that AT&T was going to be in real trouble. We had a, a big cover in Business Week at the beginning of 2010 on the peril of the iHogs, right? The people who abused the unlimited iPhone plan when, you know, the iPhone was initially exclusive to AT&T Wireless. And once the iPhone expands out to Verizon or T-Mobile and Sprint, that it was really going to shake AT&T, but that didn't happen. There was much more of an equilibrium. We saw, you know, there's the premium price Verizon Wireless. There's AT&T maybe as a second. Sprint is always the cheapo. T-Mobile with John Legere coming in and throwing these grenades and, and kind of keeping all those other guys honest. But all of them kind of enjoy a, a homeostasis right now. So if that's left alone... Craig, I don't understand. The business AT&T broadly just keeps declining, atrophying? Uh-huh. I mean, look, you know, here. so here's a stat to, to wrap your head around um, with your reference to the, the IHOG problem. Over the last five years, this is the last five years ending at the end of last year because this is data from the Wireless Industry Association. Over the five years, um, the average usage per device, the amount of data that each device handled, grew by 14 and a half times, mm. 14 and a half times um, per device. The revenue generated per device over that same period fell by 7%. Mm. Um, and so the idea that using more and more and more data was somehow going to generate more and more revenue, well, it didn't work that way. Um, usage went up, revenue went down, returns in the industry got more and more stressed. And the consumer mobility business at, at AT&T is now growing at a negative 5.6% revenue growth rate. And Say that again. AT&T Wireless is growing at what? The, just the consumer mobility business mm -hmm. is, is shrinking at 5.5% a year. Oh. The overall wireless business at Verizon is shrinking at about 1% a year. They actually, where they make their money is in business wireless. But for anybody that thinks, well, that's just a temporary phenomenon, if you cast your eyes over to Europe and look at the wireless market, it's been shrinking for 10 years. The competitive dynamics of a market with multiple competitors and a saturated market um, with very low disposable income growth uh, in the economy um, is not a picture that says this is a, a long-term home run. And that's why Randall Stevenson ultimately said, I have to do something. David Fulkenflick, NPR media correspondent. I want to talk to you about the joys, the many joys of Wi-Fi. When I get home after a long day, I got my shiny new Apple TV set up there in this tiny little remote, and I have a Netflix login, which I mooch off my brother in Miami. I got my iPhone, which I can tether to this Apple TV and really watch anything out there on Vimeo, on my Amazon Prime account. I don't spend that much time on uh, Comcast $130 package uh, really anymore. Maybe save for watching my Dodgers get slammed this week by the Cubs. Hmm. Um, you know, for live sports, maybe Sundays or Saturday college football. Uh, 
I like the fact that I can go in and buy things a la carte on Apple iTunes, like if a movie's being released simultaneously. Talk to me about, um, I don't know if this does boil down to Wi-Fi, but you could do a lot of things on a kind of a private label, no frills internet right now. You can make calls over WhatsApp or Skype. You can watch Apple TV. You can watch Amazon TV. You can get a Roku. Uh, the road doesn't necessarily go through these, uh, m you know, vertically integrated media giants anymore. No, although some of these items that are replacements are not exactly owned by tiny mom and pop shops either. Uh, uh, if you think about WhatsApp, I think it's owned by, I, I, it's Facebook. I'm not the tech guy, but that's Facebook. If you think about uh, Skype, I think that's Microsoft. Right. Uh, these are not uh, tiny uh, fly-by-night operations. Uh, you know, look, if I didn't cover media, I wouldn't have the 120, I think it is, dollar uh, a month. That's uh, probably a business write-off uh, for you too. That's cable. awesome. Uh, it is, but you know, it's it's, it's a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, I might not, uh, for that matter, I might not get all the digital newspaper subscriptions I do, but I do, and they're sure. good newspapers. Uh, I, you know, we do have Amazon Prime. We do have. Uh, but you know, uh, see, seize what you just said, David, because let's say I take the whole fully loaded number of my kind of entertainment and mind share numbers, attention economy numbers for every month. Let's say I put it at $180. Sure. It's much more comfortable for me to go out and spend that a la carte. Say I want to spend a portion of that on a dime bag. Say I want to spend a little bit of that, you know, going to a casino, a little bit of that on Netflix. A legal dime bag. Yeah, yeah you know. You know a little, regulated dime nice bag. Dinner. It's you call that the attention economy, though. <laughs> <laughs> the lack of attention economy. You know what I'm saying, though. The appeal yeah. of being able to take that. It's like I've, that's found money in a cushion and break it up and send it to, you know, I get I get a login, you know, Spotify, Pandora, it's all across the plane. Whenever you talk to people who work at places like Comcast, who are dealing with people like Senator John McCain, who's argued for an a la carte for quite some time, right? Com you know, Comcast will ultimately make the argument that boils down to if you provide everybody with complete choice, they're sort of immobilized and you're undermining the financial system that creates all this content. If we don't build in some money, that is, if you're, what they're really saying for me anyway, as a takeaway is that if you're not building in some inefficiency so that you're not only paying transactionally for the precise thing that you want, then we don't have the money to create I, things I that can you understand you that, but when I'm that's flipping their, through that's, the that's their, I'm not, I'm not defending okay, it. But I'm when saying that, that when comes channel, off as the argument. When channel 537 has Ted Nugent shooting bear meat, right? And preparing bear meat for me, like that's money. Quality entertainment for your dollar. I'm subsidizing someone else. I can tell you, and this kind of gets to the discussion of the spin the, the skinny bundle it's it's patronizing it's like me walking into a grocery store and you know Safeway telling me that you need to buy all these other things if you just want to buy avocados and orange juice I need to fill your cart with oh other look things. Robin Robin I actually think by our in principle by and large you're right I think you should be able to uh, you know, at minimum, have you know certain baskets, not of deplorables, but of channels you can choose <laughs> among, and say, you know, I want uh, X numbers from A, which are premium; X numbers from B, which are uh, which are uh, mid-level; X numbers from C, which are basic. And uh, you know, I'll be charged uh, twenty-five dollars a month or whatever it is. However, you have to manipulate it to work, but that it's a much diminished. Uh, uh, you don't have to take 600 channels to get the 12 that you really want. And if they don't, if they don't offer it, if Comcast and Charter and the likes that have gotten used to this model and gotten rich on this model for 40 years, if they don't offer it, the marketplace ultimately is. I mean, Netflix no, was I, delivering DVDs to me, and it created a studio, an aspirational studio from scratch. Amazon, which is not eh. judged on profitability. I mean, various players can kind of come in and, and cut these other guys out, and it just becomes almost like an anonymous Wi-Fi connection. Maybe. I, you know, count, count me as slightly skeptical of some of what you just said. And by the way, I, I think that uh, David just called Ted Nugent a deplorable. You heard it her first. No, no, um, no, no. Uh, He's going to get fired for that, man. Leave the guy. <laughs> I'll get fired upon for that, but that's a different yeah, issue. Right. Get fired, fired out with a bow and arrow. Um, we were talking before about what my generation's music was. I, I remember Ted Nugent back when he used to play a guitar instead of a bow and arrow. Um, but <laughs> the, the idea of a bundle um, actually does make a whole lot of economic sense. Everyone loves to rail against it and talk about how terrible it is. Um, but the economics of a bundle actually do um, make a fair amount of sense for consumers. Um, and And the idea that you know, I, I, having done this for a long time, even in the 1990s, when I was advising companies, I would talk to media companies and they would say, when is it that all television is going to go over the Internet? And the, and the tech companies in particular all railed at the idea of bundling and said it was anti-consumer and that sort of thing. And they never really 
we're willing to acknowledge that just because consumers think they would like it better doesn't mean that that's the way it's going to be. I mean, I wish I had a jetpack, but <laughs> all businesses are a compromise between what consumers want and what providers can actually economically provide. And um, and David was right. The economics of creating that content um, actually do rest upon a business model that um, that gives customers an awful lot more choice than they think they want. But it turns out that's a pretty good economic model for everybody. And that's one of the reasons why 20 years after people got the idea that blowing it up was, was going to be a clever solution, it still hasn't really happened yet because – because no one has yet been able to come up with the economic model that makes it work for both sides. And one thing, one thing I think is worth acknowledging, and I'll, as a matter of disclosure, my wife works for a, a, a Audible, which is a subunit of Amazon. But if you had Amazon and you had, uh, you know, you have iTunes, you have these other things, and the economic models of the major media companies are undermined. CBS, Time Warner, these other places. The back catalogs that you know Netflix and Amazon can offer us would be substantially depleted. I'm not saying new things don't arise mm -hmm. when other things crumble, but that as currently aligned, if those guys really are badly diminished so they put out far fewer films, if they only have flights of 10 for sitcoms a year you know, and, and don't have a commensurate increase in the number of series they're producing, whatever. And there, there are plenty of reasons to criticize the way in which TV and movies are run. But nonetheless, you know, those back catalogs rely on economics that created them in what we consider to be an ineffective or inefficient uh, cable system. I think it's fair. Yeah, to say. here I want to give you a thought experiment for a second. Imagine that you had a world with ten channels, and everybody subscribed to their own set of ten channels, and the average person, let's say, was spending twenty dollars a month or something, and everybody had selected just the channels they want. What if one channel at that point said, "You know, I've got a great idea for a promotion. I'm going to make my channel available to everybody who didn't choose my channel for free and add my channel to their package. I'm going to." By doing that, have lots more eyeballs, and then I can sell more advertising. I'll pour the advertising dollars back into program development and have better programming. And it's going to be a virtuous cycle, and, and it's going to work well for me. All their competitors that own all the other cable networks would probably say, yeah, that's actually a good idea. I think I'm going to do that too. And before you know it, you would have everybody getting every channel again, um, still paying the same price they were paying before. And, and everybody would, in, in a couple of years after they forgot that I got all this stuff um, seemingly for free, they would start to complain, why am I paying for all these channels I didn't ask for? I don't know if that's called a tragedy of the commons. Uh, it sounds something smells like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, but in, in some ways, it's a be careful what you wish for. Um, everybody feels like they are being deprived of choice, um, and the package is undeniably expensive. But it's easy to see how we got to where we're going, and it's not clear at all that the grass is greener on the other side if you say, I'm going to unwind it and give people less choice for the same amount of money. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Craig Moffat, founder at Moffat Nathanson. He's been covering media and telecom for a quarter century. And David Folkenflik, media correspondent at NPR. Uh, David, I want to take a hard turn into um, Time Warner itself. Um, it spun off its magazine division, its storied magazine division, a couple years ago, actually kicked it to the curb with a debt load. And Time Magazine and Fortune and people were left to their own devices. Uh, the next divestiture bandied about is CNN, which you've covered this week. And suppose this, this whole AT&T Time Warner deal does go through the regulatory gauntlet and emerges. Could you really see AT&T holding CNN? And if not, then where would CNN go if they, for example, had to give up on some assets to make this deal get ratified? Well, so look, obviously, one of the questions about this deal, a uh, story that I covered uh, uh, just this week, uh, focused on what does this do for CNN, this you know, a leading uh, news provider, one of the f real television uh, outlets, whatever one thinks of it, that invests in actual reporting rather than, than simply opinionators. Uh, uh, the in theory, and, in theory. No, I said they invest in reporters. I'm not saying there aren't pundits that are on the air, but they do actually have I mean, a I lot see, of reporters. I see its value to Time Warner is that it almost has like this non-negotiable rate. You have to have CNN. It's table stakes if you're a cable provider, so you have to pay Time Warner what it wants. 
Well, it may not pay with Polymorn or all of it at once, but it certainly pays at a, a significant rate. It is seen as a prestige channel. Uh, uh, it may not. It, it cannot. Uh, command the same rates as, say, Fox News just because of the sheer volume of Fox's audiences and the, the uh, shall we say, rabidness of some of its core audience, the, the, the real loyalty they feel. But CNN is a place that people turn to when news breaks, uh, when there's a terrorist incident, when there's a crisis, when the, the national stakes are highest. And, you know, it's, it's seen... I don't think it's a public utility in the sense of public radio where, where it's you know uh, not doing it for profit. But I think it's seen as public utility in the sense that But it people, has a public trust. It has a public trust and people expect it to be there for it when the, when news breaks. And I think that, that you're right that that is table stakes for any cable provider. That has to be part of any basic package. And so that's a value if you're doing it. And that, that, that then lends itself to – that helps along negotiations on other – presumably other uh, Turner sure, Broadcasting sure. Uh, uh, channels as they have to negotiate for those as well. Uh, and it seems to me that you know the question of independence is key. You know, AT and T, as well as being a telecommunications company that's in that business, you know, what it does has implications. It has implications in the federal regulatory sector. You know, there are a lot of elements in front of uh, Senate and House committees. There are questions in front of uh, uh, federal agencies that are semi-independent that 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 get reviewed. Those are things that have to be covered by an outlet like CNN. Uh, there are national security issues, for example, the questions of te- telecoms co- uh, cooperating with the NSA and other major uh, uh, security uh, agencies uh, for, for the federal government. And th- those are issues that are complicated. Uh, and of course, the issues of privacy, how people are tracked for where they go, what they do, not just in terms of uh, national security concerns, but in terms of as consumers. And so these are things with, with theoretically billion-dollar implications and that, that a place like CNN to be taken seriously has to cover. I might add that the Washington Post, which I still think is one of the premier news outlets of the country, is personally owned by Jeff Bezos, of uh, uh, the founder and, and leader of Amazon. And Amazon has you know hundreds of millions of dollars and hopes to have billions of dollars in, in contracts with the federal government for cloud services and, and also has a host of its own issues, including taxation and consumer privacy the like that, that the Washington Post has to right. navigate as well. And I think the Post has done admirably. I don't think there's any requirement that AT&T divest itself of CNN in the way that it was fairly clear that if Rupert Murdoch had succeeded in acquiring Time Warner, that because it owned a Fox News and Fox Business Network, that it was going to have to, de- shall we say, deacquisition or but get also, rid of uh, sell-offs. But also AT&T CNN. is always on regulatory tenterhooks and it is one of the biggest lobbyists in the country. And it might be looked at as parlously kind of if you own something which is kind of quasi-national trust, maybe they would divest it just to, to grease the skids to getting the more attractive assets done. You might think that, done. but that, that, that doesn't seem to have anything to do with why General Electric got rid of NBC and MSNBC and, and, and NBC Universal, They were just desperate. Example. They were in a financial pickle and they sold at the low. I mean, they would look sure. at like, go and go and get rid, you know, you're a subprime victim. <laughs> so maybe they should have sold that far earlier. They should have held on longer if they could, as as uh, Craig has pointed out. So where do you see CNN headed in that respect? I mean, do you, if, if suppose they do have to sell it, uh, do you see any other buyers out there? Well, there's nothing preventing it from uh, reabsorbing into charter the old uh, Time Warner cable and, uh, you know, finding a home there. Uh, you, you could see other places it might go, but you've got to decide. People got to decide they want to spend real money on this. Uh, and this is in you know, CNN has actually made great strides digitally, it seems to me, in terms of revenues and in terms of investment. It's been one of the few places, I think, that that really has a success story. I don't know if it's an enduring one or not. There's been a huge amount of news in the last two years, and they've made a major investment. And, you know, I, I want all media enterprises to flourish. But, but you know, I think that, 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 that we're going to have to follow that pretty closely to figure it out. CNN itself is... You know, they're looking to figure out, hey, can we survive in the over-the-top market? We haven't seen video really uh, – or video news, I'm sorry, really do that in that way. I don't think we have a model for that. Sure. So that's that's something that you hear from CNN, for that matter, from HBO, and yet you also hear real wariness about, about approaching it, it seems to me. There are a couple of headlines I want to throw at you guys, actually. There's this uh, headline in Variety that says, AT&T CEO says DirecTV streaming service will now cost $35 a month. So that's a significant departure from the company's previous stance when it suggested that it would launch a premium product that wasn't looking to undercut existing paid TV services. That's headline one. Headline two, Netflix raises a billion dollars more in debt to fuel original content. That stuff is not cheap, whether you're talking about Stranger Things or Marvel's Iron Fist or Bloodline and a talk show from Bill Nye or Black Mirror. And then this headline, uh, Steve Case, the CEO of AOL in that ill-fated turn-of-the-century AOL Time Warner mega merger, said, 
In an essay for the Wall Street Journal, AOL's enormous internet reach wasn't leveraged. Instead, it was undermined. The move that stands out to me today was the 2002 decision to kill voice services for AOL's Instant Messenger. Remember Instant Messenger? Long before Skype and FaceTime emerged, the fear was that the software would compete with Time Warner Cable's Triple Play Bundle, which included phone service. And that speaks to the difficulty of, of, of integrating a behemoth the size of AT&T Time Warner. I remember, Craig, I was in a Time Warner Cable customer service center in Chelsea, and there were all these, these headlines about Roadrunner Cable, Roadrunner Cable, Roadrunner Cable. And I just wanted somebody for once to offer me AOL broadband in 2002. And they're like, nope, <laughs> you're, you're going to have – that's Virginia, and you need to talk to us in Queens, and we don't talk to those people. <laughs> talk – Talk to the kind of cultural difficulties of Texas being merged with what Columbus Center and and, uh, movie studios and California and everything else Time Warner has going on. Well, again, you're you're presuming that it will be merged um, and as opposed to just owned. um, And those are two different things. Um, I I think Randall Stevenson has been quite clear in in the roadshow that they've been doing since the announcement um, that they have no intention of trying to. Um, merge the companies in any meaningful way and and try to take over leadership. Now, when the rubber meets the road, it's when it comes time to evaluate performance of executives, when it comes time to provide incentives to uh, executives, when it comes time to allocate capital between divisions, and suddenly um, you've got somebody that comes in saying, "Here, I need money because I need the following, uh, I need sure. to green light the following movie, and uh, and you've got a creative type talking to uh, a suit in Dallas, and those conversations don't end well usually. Um, they are culturally such different entities that um, the t- the intersections between them are always going to be um, relatively high friction. But Randall, I think, has been quite humble and and candid in saying, look, I will be the first one to admit I don't know anything about the the movie business. And so I'm not going to try to micromanage the movie business. I'm going to, I'm hiring people that are very competent at at, at Time Warner and they're going to run the movie business. They're going to run the assets that I'm acquiring. And you, if you look at, if you look at Sony, for example, that's a company that, you know, at its root, you don't think of, wow, these are people who are going to make great creative endeavors. And Sony Pictures seems to, on the whole, create some, you know, they're selective, but they make some good films as well as some bad ones. And they don't seem to me to operate significantly worse than other studios there. It seems to me that there's a a degree of, uh, uh, how should we say, uh, there's a a rapport, but not a, a controlling mechanism back at the headquarters in Japan. I don't know if you look at that differently, but tell me what this does for the rest of the sector. We've been hearing about Viacom, um, you know, in the ailing Subner Redstone, shacking up again formally with with uh, CBS, which has been really successful as a spinoff on its own. Um, there is Rupert Murdoch, who I think even in his you know older older years in the twilight of his career, maybe he sees he has one more mega deal in him. Uh, what does this do to Disney? And then you bring in the other players like Google, Apple, Facebook, which have enormous market caps and, and cash hoards that might be interested in being involved in this vertically integrated world somehow. You're you're tapping into something that investors love, just like everybody else. It's, it's like hot stove league stuff, you know? Yeah, absolutely. This is fantasy football for mergers and acquisitions. And Everyone is inevitably playing that game. And so yesterday, and especially yesterday when the markets opened, um, you started to see people connecting the dots and tipping all of these dominoes. And, and those kind of flights of fancy are fun to talk about. But let's go back to diagnosing for a second what AT&T is doing. And the, at the heart of, of what happens next is is the question of why is AT&T doing this? If you think AT&T is doing this because they are executing a grand strategy that gives them competitive advantage, then then there are a lot of people that are going to have to respond like chess pieces and they're going to have to come up with their own strategies. If, on the other hand, you don't think this is a grand strategy, but instead it is diversification born of real weaknesses in, in the set of cards that, that uh, AT&T has been dealt, then you come up with a completely different diagnosis that says that there is actually no reason for anybody else to do much of anything in response. Mm-hmm. And and I happen to be in the latter camp that says, and at the very least, I think there is an enormous likelihood that 
all of those other players who are in those first one or two or three concentric circles on the outside looking in are going to watch to see what happens and watch two things. First of all, is this going to be allowed because there is this big regulatory slog in front of it? So is this even going to be allowed? And then second, if it's allowed, does it actually work? And is there any real merit to the concept of vertical integration? Because remember, it wasn't that long ago that some pretty smart people, including Jeff Bucus, as we were saying before, looked at the question of vertical integration and said, eh, not so much. I think it's time to actually do exactly the opposite. So AT&T um, is going very much in the opposite direction. And, and you mentioned Comcast, and Comcast has been come up a number of times during this show. I would argue that Comcast acquiring NBC was exactly the same thing. It was a diversification strategy. Now, it's worked out well, but here's the important distinction between what Comcast did and what AT&T did. Comcast bought NBC at, in, the, in the trough of- In the an, teeth of uh, the Great uh, in, Recession, yeah. In the teeth of the Great Recession and at a low multiple, less than nine times EBITDA in financial terms um, or operating cash flow. AT&T is buying- uh, Time Warner at the end of a seven-year ex- expansion. It's huge. I mean, this was a nineteen dollars stock. At a stock. very high premium. This was a nineteen dollars stock, if I remember correctly, and now it's you know the takeout price was assumed implied at one hundred and eight dollars. Exactly right. And so, so if what matters in a diversification strategy is did you buy high or did you buy low, Comcast bought low, and AT and T. It's it, we won't know for a while if it, if if it turns out that this is a roaring home run, people will say, in retrospect, didn't matter. In retrospect, they, it actually was still pretty cheap, even in, in uh, 2016. Or in retrospect, people will say um, at the end of a seven-year bull run and, and a peak advertising market and peak margins, it was exactly the wrong time to say I'm going to pay a high multiple for sure. that, and it turned out badly. But, but ultimately, if it's not about grand strategy, and I don't think it is, it's about did you pay a fair price, and sure. that's all it is. David Folkenflik, in the few minutes we have left, I'd like you to talk about something that the late uh, New York Times media columnist David Carr once brought up, is that this golden age of content also has perils, right? I mean, I, I get an issue of The New Yorker, get an issue of The Economist. I'm not fully up to date on all the episodes of Westworld that everybody's talking about. There's Black Mirror. There's still Sherlock and and Cumberbatch, Benedict, <laughs> whatever, you know, Benedict Cabbage Patch that I need to catch, you know, the rest of the series on. There's just so much content out there. As great as it is, I don't want to short shrift AMC. HBO is wonderful. What about Amazon and Transparent? What about Hulu? What about blah, 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 or YouTube Red? Um, what if we're just in this enormous quality content bubble? And that's just going to be inflation by itself. There's more content than you can ever hope to consume, whether you do it on a mobile device or over a fat pipe, you know, broadband connection. Do you ever wonder about that? Not only do I wonder about it, I experience it. I feel it. I feel at times I think, gosh, there's that great story I put aside in The New Yorker. Gosh, you know, there's a whole series that I haven't been able to embark upon. And I'm just going to have to wait and hope that I remember that it's something that I wanted to do. Uh, I find that uh, that digital screens take up more of my day than ever. Uh, and the smaller they are, the more likely they are to, to, to distract me and detract from my time. And there are times where I literally just have to put it down so I can absorb. I've, I, I try now to limit how many books I buy through my Kindle app simply so that I force myself to look at the printed page. And I do that with newspapers as well. I just find that it's a different and immersive experience. But I, you know, we could well be in a bubble. I would say that there's uh, more wonderful stuff and there's more crap. I don't think that they are contradictory. I think there's just more. And I think that, you know, each of these, it's, there are definitely new players. Netflix is a new creator. Amazon is a new creator. There are new creators. And at the same time, you know, most of our attainment, I still think is, is created by a relatively small number of, of actors, not, not actual actors, but players in, 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 the, in the industry. It's, it's not that many players involved. You're seeing consolidation in television ownership of local stations in we're currently seeing certain kinds of consolidation in the entertainment field in recent years. We're seeing consolidation in, you know, telecom as well. You're seeing you're seeing a lot of this stuff uh, get get centralized and consolidated, uh, and yet they're all trying to you know slice it ever more finely. We're in a a cable world, not a broadcast world. We're in a, a you know a, a niche. The the reason that Fox Business Network exists is not because they want to displace Fox News. It's because they want to say, well, we want to have two in a landscape of many. We don't just want to have one in a landscape of many. And you sure. see this with all of these guys. So yeah, there is more stuff all over. And it, it is 
It is dizzying because you have to figure out what uh, niche you want to be part of because that hour is still your hour of your life. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of journalism that flies past that we don't get to absorb uh, in any kind of common way. And therefore, we don't get to understand uh, what the common set of facts are that we're deciding to argue what the best solution is for. And sometimes we're not even able to argue what the best issues are that we need to find what the common set of facts are that we need the solutions for and and, and so on. It's, it's a very – I think we live in a kind of kaleidoscopic, fragmentary time. And I think that's true for our entertainment as well as for, for you know, what I pay most of my time to, which is the news side of things. For the record, gentlemen, and I know we started this uh, esteemed broadcast with a, a new wave classic from 1981-1982, I'd like to throw another one out at you that your content is so great to me, Craig Moffat and David Folkenflik, that I'd stop the world and melt with it. <laughs> is that is that a little too tortured? Yeah, that was that was brutal. Yeah, that's, oh, that's, yeah. No, so that's brutal. Let, oh, it's brutal. Let's let's you end know, on. Let, let, let's <laughs> let a thousand metaphors fly, but not on this broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mix metaphors like you wouldn't believe. I appreciate it, gentlemen. Craig Moffat, founder at Moffat Nathanson, he's been on Wall Street covering media and telecom for uh, two decades plus, and David Folkenflik, media correspondent at NPR. I am so grateful. You bet. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Listen to us and love us on NPR One. iTunes at FullDRadio.com, ACAST, Stitcher, SoundCloud. And and you can even listen to us on Apple TV. Try it. I kid you not. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Full D Radio. We are digital natives, skinny bundlers, diagonally integrated, growers of our poo left and right. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. I'm